0: Good morning to those of you here in the sanctuary and those of you listening online. Uh, This last week, uh, how many of you binge on Netflix or something like that? Anybody else binge on that? You can admit it, come on. (laughs) I binged all week on the sermons that you've been hearing all summer. So, I mean, that was much better than binging on Netflix, anything I've ever binged on. And I listened to several and uh, didn't get through all of them. But uh, loved Pastor Mary's message. Loved Pastor Shirley's message. I mean, her title. Anything with twisties in the title of the sermon. I'm like, I gotta listen to this. And Pastor Kurt from Hingham, from the uh, or Hull and the the center that they run down there. You gotta love that guy. I mean, when he stands up here and says. I'm scared to death. I'd, be, I'd rather be in a shootout than be here standing in front and talking to people. And I'm like, I know the guy. I know Kurt. And I'm like, yeah, that's Kurt. But man, <laughs> I don't know. This, <laughs> this really is a lot safer. <laughs> and I listened to Pastor Jeff's two sermons before going on sabbatical. And it helped me to just kind of know where, you know, what had been happening and leading up to sabbatical and, and throughout the summer. So let me just get to the sermon now and introduce the sermon because this is going to seem pretty random the way that I, I'm starting this. So I'm just going to ask you right out front just to bear with me because uh, I'm going to talk to you about one of my favorite if not my very favorite book on marriage, and yet this sermon has nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> and so you're gonna think, you know, and I have, have been known to go on rabbit trails, but I usually don't start out with them. Um, the book is called The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, or for Making Marriage Work, and it's by John Gottman. And the reason I love this book is not only is it filled with really great uh, practical and wise principles that I think are the easiest to implement of pretty much any kind of marital advice book that that I've read, and I've read a a bunch. Um, But what I really like is that this book is all based on research. They have this studio apartment out in Seattle that they affectionately refer to as the Seattle Love Lab. But it is on a university campus, the University of Washington. And this, and this studio, what happens is couples volunteer to go and be part of this study. And they are in this studio and from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., there are three cameras all the time going except in the, in the bathroom and uh, they are wired up with microphones. There's a one-way mirror that a group of scientists are observing their every move and every inflection and writing everything down. And they even have one of those uh, halter monitors strapped around their chest that is, that is uh, giving them uh, monitoring their, their heart rate. What kinds of conversations start making the heart just kind of race and the blood pressure go up or down? And because of all of that, and I think it's rather fascinating, I mean, like I said, they can see and hear everything and at first I'm sure it's quite awkward. Um, but then I think they just forget about they forget about it. and they just are having conversations and they're eating their breakfast and calling people, and they just start doing their thing, and they capture everything. They capture every word that is spoken to each other. They capture every roll of the eyes, like the words that are not said, or maybe a look of real empathy towards one another. But they capture it all. And because of this kind of research, Gottman claims that he can predict whether or not a couple will divorce or stay together with a 91% success rate. And that's pretty amazing. And this this has been going on for many years. I read this book first back in 1999. He can also, and by the way, he tells him, he, he also says that now it takes him only five minutes to do that. to to determine, with a 91% accuracy rate, who's going to make it and who isn't. With a 90, he has a 96% success rate of accuracy of knowing how a conversation between a couple is going to end based on how it started. Now you didn't know you were getting this marriage advice today, but just consider it a two for one no extra charge, it all goes in there. Um, and, and, and I'll just tell you, the way that he can tell is what he calls whether a convert. and this is just for all relationships, by the way. But if a, if a conversation begins on a harsh note, he says that there's a 96% chance that it's going to end on a harsh note. But if it begins on a soft note, a, a soft startup, he says, Chances are you're going to have a very good conversation, no matter how difficult the the topic may be. Keep that in mind, because if you start in a harsh way, like, hey, i got a bone to pick with you, I mean, you might as well just call a timeout right there, go for a walk, come back, and say, let's start over again. I just want to share some thoughts with you. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because... At the end of the book, they talk about the follow-up that they did with couples who were successful in their marriage. And what they wanted to learn was how they continued to do so well in their marriage. And what they discovered was that they basically had uh, an additional five things that they did that amounted to about five hours a week. And he calls them the magic five hours. And the first thing is partings. Make sure that before you say goodbye in the morning, let's just say it's a typical, traditional weekday. Uh, People go off to work in the morning, come back late afternoon, early evening. Make sure you say goodbye in the morning and you've learned about one thing that is happening in your spouse's life that day. From lunch with the boss, to a doctor's appointment, or to a scheduled phone call with an old friend. Reunions, be sure to engage in a stress-reducing conversation at the end of each day when you come back together. Admiration and affirmation, find some way every day to communicate genuine affection and appreciation toward your spouse. And affection, kiss, hold, and touch each other during the time you're together. Make sure to kiss each other before going to sleep. Think of that kiss as a way to let go of minor irritations that have built up over the day. In other words, lace your kiss with forgiveness and tenderness to your partner. And then finally, go on a weekly date. This can be a relaxing, low-pressure way to stay connected. Ask each other questions that... Let's you update your love maps and turn toward each other. So, here's how I see this applying to our situation here today. The weekly date, we're having it. It's a date with God, and we all gather together in one form, format, or another to worship God and to listen to his word, to pray, and to just take in all that he is and has for us. I think that there's something to say about that 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 does something not only to our own personal relationship with Jesus, but with one another in the church. Affection. Now, I know that in the New Testament, we are told to kiss one another with a holy kiss but we can't do that during COVID times, so we're not going to. We never do anyway. But what, the part that I do like is think of that kiss as a way to let go of minor irritations that have built up over the day. Irritations can build up in a lot of relationships. Irritations, even minor ones, they start as minor. You know how minor irritations become really big ones? It's when you start to uh, just uh, focus on that grievance. And you build a whole narrative around a grievance, and before you know it, you're nursing this grudge that never had to turn into that. If we had only practiced something so simple as this, I stayed at a Trappist monastery a few times, and at night, they—they they, these these monks, these are the the Trappist monks. I call them the. The uh, elite, like 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 the the Marines, the seals of monks, <laughs> they they and I and I followed a day with them. They start their prayer. I think it was the first time was three in the morning, and then they go through all day at different times, and they work all day too. It's a balance of work and prayer. But the final time of prayer is called compline, and at that time, and and I was in the back of the, of, the, of the church and with some other people and the monk came back and he had this thing that, that they use that has holy water in it with holes in it. I wish I knew what it was called. But he invited us to come forward. He said, going to sprinkle you to remind you of your baptism. Before you go to sleep, think of it as a good night kiss from God. And I love that. I wish somebody could sprinkle me every night in that way. <laughs> And just remind me of my baptism and as if God's goodnight kiss to me. But there's something to say about the forgiveness and tenderness that is laced in those kinds of acts of affection and admiration and affirmation. Find some way every day to communicate uh, genuine affection, um, appreciation. This This is really how churches grow to be so loving and how there's such good relationships uh, amongst each other and between people and pastor. And that's where I'm really going with this, which is why I'm moving backwards. The partings and the reunions. I find that such a simple but, but uh, a profound way to keep a marriage healthy. Pay attention to how you part in the morning and pay attention to how you reunite at the end of the day. You should know something about your spouse every day, and then talk about it later. How did that talk go with your boss? Did you ever get to connect with your friend? What did the doctor say? When we do that, we are, we are, we are just building this connection. So the partings and reunions are so important. So last July, after much prayer and preparation in conjunction with the church board and with their full support and blessing, you and your pastor parted for a season in order to provide Pastor Jeff a time for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual rest after nearly 19 years of faithful pastoral service, and that's only in this church, which by the way is the longest tenured pastor you've ever had in your history so after nearly 19 years jeff went away for 9 weeks to intentionally and deliberately focus on being with jesus replenishing body soul and mind and so today is the reuniting you parted well it's really important to not take the reuniting for granted and to reunite well. And that will make all the difference in the world. How we do it matters. That's my purpose for being here today. I was invited to come and to help facilitate a process um, that, and and this is it, we're doing the process. (laughs) Um, And so in order to do that, I just want to spend a little time. We already heard from Pastor Mary uh, reading that profound hymn, that creed from Philippians 2, but now I want to read this prayer from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. Paul founded the church in Ephesus, and he always cared for them and always loved them. He is writing this from prison. He is no longer their pastor, but he never stopped having them in his heart. And so he is writing them all of this tremendous uh, truths of, 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 of of the salvation life. It's just filled with rich words of being that we were dead, but we were made alive again in Christ, about the glorious riches that he prayed that they would have Wisdom and revelation so that they would know God better. And he talked about all the spiritual blessings. And then he just kind of, he just right in the middle of Ephesians, right in the middle of the six chapters of the book, he he just goes into this prayer. And he says, for this reason, all these reasons he was describing about about the blessings and the gifts and the graces of God's salvation to them. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now you would think that would be the end of the sermon, but that's not even the end of Ephesians. So don't go there yet. It's just the end of this section of the three chapters of just like he's. He's just he's really blessed by all of these things that he's talking about to them and he and 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 so he 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 takes all of them and he and he, and he forms it into a prayer and that's really what, what we need to do so much of the time in this chapter 3 Paul had been talking about what he referred to as the mystery of Christ that was revealed to him by God and that that mystery was that now that Gentiles have become have become fellow heirs with the Jews. They are considered members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He introduced this concept in chapter two by saying God had taken the two peoples who, who were actually hostile to one another, and how the Jews were very near to God in proximity, and the Gentiles were very far from God in proximity. And it simply means that, just as Romans says, that the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But God's great plan and dream was always that that, that the gospel would reach everyone, the entire world, which is why this prayer even says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth derives its name. This prayer is for everyone, and we all belong to God. We all are his children. And what he's saying was that Jesus, by his death on the cross, became our peace, and he destroyed the hostility between them creating in himself one new humanity out of the two, and thus making peace. If if that was God's great dream, and it was, and if Christ, by dying on the cross, could destroy the hostility between Jew and Gentile, then certainly he can destroy any hostility that exists in any body of believers today. in, In all the different denominations, He can destroy all, it's it's all there if we would only lean into it. There's a lot of hostility and it doesn't need to be there because Christ paid the ultimate price to make sure that we would be one in him. He created us as a new humanity. It's, it's, It's important that we not let what he did by giving his very life as a sacrifice to do that, to be in vain and allow hostilities to to remain and to fester. And remember, you do this by a daily kind of check-in. It's letting, you know, you just address things quick. This is what I love about recovery. Recovery teaches you to make amends and and to do it right away. People in recovery... People who are recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction and 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 all kinds of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Sometimes they're better at that than the average church because it, it's, they just know that their recovery, their very survival, depends on it. Of 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 and and the way that we say it is, "Hey, look, I can only keep my side of the the street clean. I can't take care of your side of the street. You can't take care of mine." Not a bad thing for churches to go by. If everyone keeps their side of the street clean, there won't be very much hostility lingering around. Instead, there will be a connection between people. There will be be a much sweeter fellowship. There will be love. And that is so much a part of what what Paul is praying here. This, This is a big prayer. This is a big, big prayer with four big intercessions. Here are four big intercessions praying us into the very life of God. Richard Rohr said, we know God by participation in God. I like that. And that's what Paul is trying to pray us into. He prays that he may grant power through his spirit. That Christ may dwell in your hearts that you may have power to comprehend the love of Christ and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Those are big, big intercessions. And as Bible commentator Kyle Snodgrass writes, rather than a small Jesus tucked away somewhere in our souls, the prayer assumes the presence of one who gives shape and strength at the very core of our being who takes up residence and redefines us and that's what he means that you may have power by the spirit that you would have the strength to know that Christ dwells in your hearts by faith in your inner being and 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 when he talks about his 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 in, in chapter 3 when he talks about his calling to to preach the gospel to Gentiles. He says it's to preach the, the boundless, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here he uses the phrase again. He prays that out of his glorious riches, the riches of his glory, the vast wealth of his glory, for them to be strengthened with power through his spirit, where in their inner being. So that. Pay attention to the so that's in Scripture. What's the so that in your prayer? When you pray something, what is it, what is, what is, and I've said this to you before, what is the ultimate, what's the end result that you really want? So that, and what Paul is saying, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now when he talks about power, and he talks about it a lot, he's talking about the power of the Spirit as being less about doing great deeds than in having greater understanding. It's an understanding that we're going to see. It is to comprehend nothing less than all of the love of Christ. And what he says is we can't do this by ourselves. Not only do we need the Holy Spirit, but we need need all the saints. We need the entire church to be able to begin to comprehend the unfathomable love of Christ. Remember, we need to know the difference between the love of power and the power of love. And he says this has to take place in the inner being. He's talking about the interior life of the Christian, which can largely be unexplored, undeveloped, and inaccessible territory of the soul, where instead of discerning the movements of God's Spirit at work in us, we don't stop long enough to pay attention. And we are often tempted to think that our prayers are just, how many have you ever said, I feel like I'm talking to the ceiling. You know, it's like, I I don't feel like anything happens when I pray. But here's what you need to believe. And I really mean it. I know you're not supposed to say shoulds and stuff like that in sermons. I really try not to. But we really, we all should do this. And that is, we should pray. If, if, if something's going to take root in us, we really should pray out of the riches of God's glory. And when we pray, we should pray in a way that has the faith and the belief that whenever I pray, something always happens. Do you believe that? Something always happens. Remind yourself of that. I may not know what happens. I'm not sure I felt anything. I'm not seeing results. But prayer can't help but move the heart and hand of God. Something is always happening. And when we believe that, we begin to become more attentive to what is happening. What is God up to? As Mary prayed. And here we are at the very heart of it. This, is, this prayer comes in the center of Ephesians. It comes, and this part is the center of the prayer because it is the center. That you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I have to tell you that I have studied commentary after commentary for years and years, trying to figure out what is the fullness of God? And how can any of us ever claim to be filled with the fullness of God. But when I just simply read the prayer and pray the prayer, it's so simple. The fullness of God is love. That's why he talks about how it takes everyone together to begin to comprehend and grasp the, how wide and long and high and deep. I mean, there's it just keeps going on and on and on and on is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And how in Philippians, Paul talks about having a peace that surpasses knowledge. You see, too many of us, we don't know things because we think we know things. It's in our head. We try to figure it out. But it's not until we let it just kind of Find time to seep into our hearts, to become the core of our heart, to to fill every fiber of our being that we know it in body and soul. We know it not in our heads only, but we know it because we know it, because we know it. Because God is love. How could he be filled with anything other than love and all that love is? Colossians 2, 9-10 says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And this is why I think that this, this fullness of God and how all... The, the, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ and we're brought to this fullness. And how did that happen? It's only because Christ emptied himself. Now he did not empty himself of divinity. He Christ has always been fully God of fully God. and when he was incarnated, He became fully man of fully man, fully human, fully human. But somehow he emptied himself of all the divine privileges that were rightfully his, which is why it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be exploited, something for him. Think about that. We become filled with the fullness of God and his love because Christ emptied himself. That was love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Love always gives sacrificially. It's all there. You see, In the end, as Paul said, there is nothing that's going to last except faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now, this is what I find interesting. A lot of us think we go to church to build our faith, but but really, our faith isn't really built. That's, That's not the main thing that happens at church. Faith is built in church, but it's mostly built out in the world where we really have to live It's where we go when we go to work and we're facing really tough challenges and and we're in we're in difficult situations and we're facing all of the difficulties that everybody's aware of that's happening in our country and all around the world. That's where our faith is really built. Love, on the other hand, as Pastor Jeff said before, just before he went on sabbatical, that the church is God's laboratory for love love church is one of is church and family are the best places to become loving people but we have to choose it we have to choose to work on love and forgiveness in the church is i mean there's this verse i hope i'm not going out of order i don't think i am for the Melissa doing the slides, but Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. It says that God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his central purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Pastor Jeff about this, and I would say, come on, Jeff, this has got to be like a mistranslation, right? The church is the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God to confound rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I don't get it. I've been in the church since I was 15 years old and I don't get it. Try to convince a millennial that the church is the wisdom of God. (laughs) Good luck with that. That's not every millennial, but as, as you heard during the summer and probably already knew that it's the millennials that are leaving the church in droves and so are a lot of other people and I honestly believe that's because they say, I, I love Jesus, I just don't want anything to do with the church. You see, the only way that it makes sense that the church would be the manifold wisdom of God to confound powers and rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms is because the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It all comes down to divine foolishness. The wisdom of God is really divine foolishness to us. Paul Tillich said that divine foolishness is our ultimate source of wisdom. It's only because of divine foolishness that we can be filled with all the fullness of God through Christ emptying himself. Isn't it ironic that verse is like, and this won't be on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know how gracious our Lord Jesus Christ was, rich though he was. He became poor for the sake of you that by his poverty you may be made rich. You see, that's, that's divine foolishness. We are made rich. We become full because Christ emptied himself. We become rich in him because of his, he, he, he willingly became impoverished and poor. Augustine said, what are his riches going to make us if his poverty made us rich. I think we just have to focus so much more on the richness of Christ. No matter how much is happening in our world or in the church where there's nothing perfect, but the richness of Christ is found in the poverty of his humility that he emptied himself, and is full of grace and love and hope. Now, last time I was here in November, I told you that the house across the street from us put up this sign um, that big, big letters with lights around them, joy. This year, they added this sign, hope to joy, and that that is still up. I saw that this morning while it was still dark, and I smiled every time. I say, thanks, God, I need hope, and you remind me of hope. I love those people across the street. (laughs) They're keeping me going, man. (laughs) But listen to this. Listen to this interesting quote about, I know, I'm going over. I have no idea what time it is or how long I've been going. But I'm sorry if, but I just got to give this to you. Hope is a strange thing, gathering in time and memory, memory of the past and oddly. Remembering into the future, remembering into the future. It is the peculiar disposition of Christian waiting for the one who waits for us. Hope drives us on and pulls us forward into blinding darkness and veiled light. Hope slips in where despair confidently reigns. Hope waits when waiting means walking in a valley of tears. The flickering flame of hope bends into the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. What an odd thing this hope is, willing to bear the weight of sin, willing to endure the costliness of love. So I think hope, just like faith is largely built in the world and love is largely built in the church, I think hope is largely built born of prayer and I'll tell you why it's because as long as I pray I I don't see how it's possible for me to pray without at least a sliver of hope I really don't know if God's going to heal this person but I have to ask him anyway I really don't know when such and such crisis will be over or or, you know terrible things I don't want to get into I still got to ask him I still got to hope, and and hope and prayer just go together so much. But the problem so many times is the reasons our prayers fall flat with us is because we are not beginning with the richness of Christ. We are beginning with the poverty of our own hearts. That's why Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said, the richness of the word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our heart. When we start with the problem, we probably end with the problem, just like when we start with a tough discussion, we end with a tough discussion. We have to start with the richness of Christ. We have to start with the promises of the Word. And when we do that, then we can address the problems that we're seeing and having, and we can offer them to God out of an abundance of richness. So... There was this movie Stepmom. It's an old movie, it's over 20 years old, with Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon and Ed Harris. Ed Harris and Susan Sarandon were married. They're now divorced. They have two kids, a 12-year-old daughter and a little boy that I would say is about eight. Julia Roberts is now Susan Sarandon's divorced husband's uh, girlfriend and she's li- they're living together and this is really hard on them because she's never had kids and those kids are giving her a hard time they don't want her to take the place of their mother and of course Susan Sarandon is older and she's feeling threatened by this new hip cool person that he eventually gets engaged to and marries. Meanwhile Susan Sarandon gets cancer and it seems like, boy, she's really getting the short end of the straw. There's this scene where she's riding horseback with her daughter and son. And the kids are starting to like Julia Roberts because she's been trying to win them over. And the son says to, to his mother, you know, mom, I think, I think she's really pretty. And, Julie and, and Susan Sarandon says, well, sure, if you like big teeth. you know That's the kind of thing going on there. But then the son says this. He picks up on it all. Kids don't miss a thing, do they? And he says, you know, Mom, I'll hate her if you want me to. And the look, she never says a thing. But the look on Susan Sarandon's face was like, That's the effect I'm having on my son. And she knows that her son can't afford to hate her because he's going to need her. It's a profound moment, I think, in the movie. I had this image in my own mind in this whole deal of love and forgiveness. I mean, really, Jesus, love your enemies, forgive your en- those who persecute you. I mean, really, how do we do that? And when I was praying one day, I had this, this sense that Jesus, what if he was sitting next to me, and this is how the scene of the movie just came up, it all came together, and what if Jesus said, which he wouldn't, but what if he said, hey, Jim, you know those people that you hate? I'll hate them if you want me to. You know those people you won't forgive? I won't forgive them if you don't want me to. The very idea of that turned me around. And I said, oh, no, Jesus, please, you can't be anything like me. And I finally got prayer, more than I ever got it before. My prayer is not to get Jesus to come to my side and do what I want. My prayer is for him to patiently and lovingly and out of his his grace and patience to woo me towards him to the point where I was actually saying, Jesus, I'll love them if you want me to love them. And I'll forgive them if you want me to forgive them. And he did. And I did. It became so easy. Something that was such a battle for me became so easy when it came together for me like that. Not the poverty of my heart, but the richness of his heart. Now I'll close with this, and I promise Back right at the end of World War II, the very first Lent, Munich, as well as other cities in Germany and other places in Europe, but in Germany, Munich was in rubble. I I, I looked up pictures, and there was this Jesuit priest, Karl Rahner, who is holding services during Lent, the first Lent, in a shelled-out church in the midst of rubble, literally rubble. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We were reminded of how those buildings were reduced to rubble and all the trauma that went with it. And so much rubble since then, where things have crumbled, that we thought we could always count on. And he's standing with the church in a shelled-out church building in the midst of rubble, and he's talking to them about Jesus going to the cross. And this is what he says. If we people today would only try to accept ourselves as we are, to look at our disguised, or acknowledged despair. If we, as it were, descended into the depths of our hearts, if we gave up deceiving ourselves about ourselves, if we had the courage to renounce inwardly what life takes away from us anyway, namely everything, remember where they were standing. If we suddenly would notice, after giving up everything, that we possess everything, would notice that he actually is totally with us right now, the silent, nameless, incomprehensible one who is everything. If we would then notice in the loneliness of our rubbled over heart that this poor heart bears infinity within itself, If we would begin to speak softly, and he adapts the Lord's prayer to their very situation. If you'd like to say this with me, I invite you to. Our Father, you are in the heaven of my heart, even when it seems to be a hell. Hallowed be your name. May it be called upon in the deadly stillness of my perplexed silence. To us come your kingdom when all abandons us. Your will be done even if it kills us because it is life. And what seems like a setting on earth is the rising of your life in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Let us ask for this also that we never mistake ourselves for you, not even in the hour when you are near us. Rather, at least by our hunger, we notice that we are poor and unimportant creatures, free us from our guilt and protect us from the temptation of guilt and trial that is actually only one. Not believing in you and the incomprehensibility of your love But deliver us, deliver us from ourselves, deliver us into you, deliver us into your freedom and into your life. You ever feel like you're living in a rubbled over world? And you maybe even say, I have a rubbled over heart. What a prayer for us. The way the couples, as I like to call uh, Julie on her way up to make a statement before we pray for Pastor Jeff and Kathleen, the way that the couples uh, are supposed to catch up at night in their reunion is to update each other's love maps, as it's called. Well, you don't have love maps as a church necessarily, but i tell you, Today we're going to bring together in prayer by faith, hope, and love. But over the next course of weeks and months, as Pastor Jeff shares what God has done in his life over these past nine weeks, and you sit with him and share what God has been doing in your life, you're going to update each other's hearts with each other. And that's the way to do this.
1: after that powerful sermon is really unfair. <laughs> Thank you, though, Pastor Jim, for that specific message to this group on this day. You're welcome. Good morning. My name is Julie Coyne. I'm a member of the church board. And the church board I would like to take a few moments to reflect upon the past number of weeks that Pastor Jeff has been on sabbatical. The board unanimously recommended for Pastor Jeff to take a sabbatical per the Church of the Nazarene manual's recommendation. The purpose in, of a sabbatical in part is to encourage a healthy pastoral ministry and a strong spiritual life of the pastor. Although there's not usually a perfect time for a pastor to do so, the board was pleased to offer and encourage Pastor Jeff to take a sabbatical in order for his soul to be refreshed, renewed, and replenished. Since Pastor Jeff has been away, our congregation has been blessed by a series of speakers that were diverse and dynamic. They all challenged us to evaluate our own personal walks of faith and called upon this this body of believers to discern how the Lord would use us to meet the needs of others. That was the strongest theme throughout the summer, at least for me it was. Where do we need to bring the hope of Christ to others? And where has the Lord been speaking to you during this time and to me during this time? There were many people who were instrumental in making Pastor Jeff's sabbatical a time where our body continued to thrive Have you noticed the face of our leadership has changed? More members of our congregation have been meeting the call to minister. From the laity, we are witness to people like Mary Hardwick, who has been faithfully serving our children, young children and and families, Leandra Marchand, who served the youth group tirelessly this summer, and James Shetler, who has uh, answered the call as a worship leader. There are others like Bob and Carol LeMay who offer to facilitate a time of intentional prayer under the tent during these weeks. And I'm sure there's others I just, that I just not, don't know of, but you're there. The board has also assumed a greater burden of responsibility while Pastor Jeff has been away. Additionally, the board would be remiss if we did not take a moment to recognize Pastor Mary and her strong example of leadership. She is a devoted shepherd and servant who has faithfully brought our congregation through the past nine weeks of the sabbatical. Pastor Mary worked hard maintaining her regular duties while also taking on the duties and responsibilities of senior pastor. And she did it all with grace, and her diligent service kept Community Chapel on course. The board is also unanimously recommending, has recommended for Pastor Mary to engage in a sabbatical from September 26th through October 31st, so she she can also have an opportunity to refresh, renew, and replenish. What do all these people have in common? Their commitments to serve are strong examples of the church we need to become. People who are willing to look beyond ourselves, not to what we think we can do, but looking to the Lord and discerning where he wants us to be his hands and feet. We cannot be a church reliant on pastors to carry the yoke of tending to the flock anymore. As we welcome back Pastor Jeff, let's join him in finding a different way to do church so that we can make a greater impact in the national communities, wherever we find ourselves, and to his kingdom. It's so great to see Pastor Jeff and Kathleen. We look forward to hearing all the ways in which God has spoken to you Um, during these weeks. And we look, look forward to sharing with you all the ways in which God was faithful and showed himself to us as well. Welcome back.
0: Thank you for that statement. And I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff and Kathleen to come up and, and then the leadership team, if you would come, and uh, I know you're going to do this in a socially distanced way, but, but just surround them and the whole church. You can extend your arms in any way you like uh, to, just, to just be part of this prayer. Our, our Heavenly Father, we come to you today out of the richness of your glory, we come to you today out of the richness of your word, your promises, believing in faith, hope, and love, and believing that the church really still matters and the church really is your idea, and the church has endured through every crisis since throughout history in all parts of the world, and it will continue to endure. We pray, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are still calling men and women to ministry, to full-time vocational ministry, and to preach the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for putting your hand in your call one day on Pastor Jeff to, uh, when he felt so unworthy, and you called him to ministry. And he followed you. He was obedient. And he's still following you. I thank you that he had enough divine foolishness to go on sabbatical. (laughs) It's so counterintuitive for us pastors. It's so counterintuitive. But it was out of obedience and divine foolishness as the ultimate source of wisdom, your wisdom, to be with you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for bringing him back to this flock on this day. And we celebrate the reuniting of pastor and people on this day. And pray that in the weeks and months to come, as they share their hearts with each other and what God has been up to, as well as their challenges and problems in life, just sharing life, that there will be even a deeper closeness and intimacy. I thank you, Father, for for Kathleen and for her amazing support of Jeff through all these years and through this sabbatical where he was away a lot. I thank you, Lord, for what a good woman of God she is and 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 a godly great wife to Jeff. I pray that together, you would strengthen them in their inner being. And I pray that together they would continue to know really, really how deep and how wide and how long and how high is your love, Jesus. Thank you, because this will take an eternity and it will take all of us together. And so we welcome them back in the holy and good name of Jesus with our prayers and our support. And and in faith, hope, and love grounded in Jesus, these are the things that will matter and last and will never fail. We pray now for your ultimate blessing on them. In the name of the Father and of the Son,